How many times in life have you said something like, this isn't what I thought it would be, or it's just not what I expected? Maybe you've heard someone else say it. Maybe someone said it to you. Uh, Maybe you bought an item off of Amazon or some other less reputable retailer and were very excited about it. And you open that brown cardboard box and you see the item for the first time, or maybe you used it for the first time and it's just, ah, it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. Maybe you called that number on TV. Do they still do those? Call in the next five minutes for $19.99. But wait, there's more. Do they still, I don't know if they still do those, but I got taken for a ride as a child on Marvin's Magic Kit. Never forgot about it. Still burns me to this day. Maybe you went on a first or a second date with somebody. Hopes were high when you picked her up. But by the end of the evening and some awkward conversation, you know as you're dropping her off, this is the last time I will ever see you again. It just ain't going to happen. Maybe you took a job that you were initially excited about. It was exciting at first, and you came to realize this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. Maybe you had this idea about remodeling your house or, or painting a new color or installing something, and then when you saw the finished product, your heart sank and you thought, this is just not what it looked like in my head. Life is full of moments when ideas and expectations eventually become reality. When it's exactly what you thought, you're a happy camper. That's why all of us go to McDonald's sometime, right? We all know it's not the best food in the world. We know that. But ideally, it's consistent. You can right now, I said, all right, everyone, taste the Big Mac in your mind and in your mouth. Got it? Can you taste it? Now, chances are when you go to the the McDonald's, and you buy it, it's gonna be exactly like what you tasted like. And that's why we go, consistency. But what about those times in life when it's not what you expected? The disciples, and specifically Peter in today's story, are gonna get what seems to be their first reality check on their expectations of Jesus. What we're gonna see is through, uh, though they correctly understood he was the Messiah, They had incorrect expectations for what the Messiah would do. You see, it's not enough to know who Jesus is or correctly apply a name and a title. But as we will see today, it is incredibly important that you know what he came to do, what his purpose is. You need to know this for yourself first. Put your oxygen on first, okay, on the plane. But you also need to be able to communicate this with other people. You see, everyone loves the teaching, preaching, miracle worker, healer, demon caster outer, food multiplier Messiah. That guy's not hard to love. Everyone really loved the idea of the Rome-slaying, Caesar-defeating, Herod-ousting, Israel-conquesting Messiah. That guy's not hard to love. But do you love the suffering, crucified man of sorrows? I've entitled this message today, That Moment When Jesus Calls You Satan. And shortly you will understand why. Because in a moment of raw emotion and misunderstanding, Peter would try to dissuade Jesus from his mission to the cross. And Jesus would say that historic phrase to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. You know it. I hope that today we see that there is no way to separate the identity of Jesus as Messiah from the suffering of the cross. And any attempt to do this is actually the work of Satan. 
The outline today would be three simple questions. I want to make sure again that you ask these to yourself first, but knowing that many of us are believers here today, I want this to double as an evangelism training tool for you, a way for you to have conversations with unbelievers in your life. So before we go to the text, as we always do, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we ask for divine help today that you would grant understanding and wisdom and knowledge. Lord, that your text would teach and that your glory would shine above all else. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, Mark 8, 27. Mark 8, 27. Last Sunday, we looked at a passage. If you remember, Jesus challenged the religious leaders on their traditions. Jesus called them all hypocrites. You make a lot of friends that way in life. And uh, so the tension is beginning to mount with him and the religious leaders. Jesus continues to heal and perform miracles. He's on a bit of a, on an evangelistic crusade here. He's, going to, he's gone to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, he performed the feeding of the 4,000, which, pop quiz, yes, it is different than the feeding of the 5,000. Then they pass through Magdala and Bethsaida, crossing the Sea of Galilee a couple of times, doing miracles. Now they're en route to Caesarea Philippi, and a conversation ensues on the way. Look at Mark 8, 27 through 30 for the first passage today. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, they asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The first important question that I want us to be able to answer today, number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is a question of identity. Jesus and his disciples were on a 25-mile journey northward from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. A 25-mile walk. As a matter of contrast, I got winded walking up these stairs. So uh, it was the area where Israel used to have that place called Dan. Remember in the Old Testament, they would say from Dan to Beersheba, and that would sort of signify from the top to the bottom. Dan was at the top. This is where that was. So uh, this place was received by Herod Philip, and uh, he thought he would make a little homage to the Caesar, and he called it Caesarea Philippi. So before cars and trains and monorails and smartphones, when you walked places, you had a lot of time to talk to people. Your faces weren't, weren't buried in technology, and you just looked at your feet. In this 25-mile walk, I'm sure they had plenty of time to talk, and they did. Jesus used this time to drill deep into his disciples' minds and give them a little pop quiz. So he says, what's the talk of the town, fellas? What are the people saying? You know, when I'm out there preaching, you know, like me up here, if y'all are whispering to one another, I don't know what you're saying. So Jesus, even more so in these big outdoor crowds, he says, when I'm out breaking the bread for the 5,000, you're out circulating, disciples, what are you hearing? Who do the people say that I am? And we get the answers, honestly, that we got in Mark 6. If you remember, we already looked at this. When Herod asked, the crowd suggested a resurrected John the Baptist. He was a prophet, okay? They suggested Elijah, 
Now that maybe even makes more sense because Elijah technically never died, right? He was taken up in the whirlwind in the Old Testament. He did miracles too. Others just gave off a list of prophets. Who knows? Now what does this tell us? It tells us that these crowds do not know who Jesus is at this point. It feels like from the Gospel of Mark, if you've been studying with us, it feels like the demons actually have a better grasp on the identity of Jesus at this point. Uh, these crowds have been seeing all these miracles, and then Jesus looks at his disciples and say, yeah, 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 but who do you say that I am? Now, I think a lot of times we read these stories in, in the vacuum and forget what it's like to be in a moment. Has anybody ever looked at you in conversation and said, who am I to you? It's kind of deep, right? Especially before your coffee. That's a hefty question. It's like in a relationship. You guys ever remember that moment? Maybe you had it. Maybe you never had to have it. Where the significant other looks to you and says, what are we? Where, where is this going? That's an uncomfortable conversation, isn't it? It kind of puts, takes the air out of the room. That's what Jesus did when he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? You know, this story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. Each version has Peter giving the answer to this question. Now, what we don't have is, did he go back to a huddle? Did he consort with the other disciples? Was this the representative answer? Did he burst out and say his answer? We don't know. All we know is that Peter spoke, and this was the answer Peter gave to the question, who is Jesus? You've probably heard this before, but it's worth saying it again. Perhaps one of the most important questions you can ever answer in this life is, who is Jesus? The Muslims believe he's a great prophet, the second greatest prophet ever. Is that your Jesus? The Buddhists believe Jesus is an enlightened man even a holy man who displayed many of the tenets of Buddhism properly. Is that your Jesus? The Hindus believe Jesus to be a holy man, a wise teacher, even one of the gods. Is that your Jesus? Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is the first created being from God, originally Michael the archangel, then born as Jesus, a man, not God. Is that your Jesus? Mormons believe Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer, conceived physically by Elohim and Mary, one of the spirit beings that used to be before we were all born and then was chosen to be the savior of this new world. Is that your Jesus? Progressive Christians and liberals believe that Jesus is a great teacher who was killed on a cross as a victim of a bad justice system and whose main message was just to love one another and is one of many ways that we can know God and his love. Is that your Jesus? There's never a shortage of opinions in the world. You have social media, you know that to be true. There's never a shortage of opinions, but there always seems to be a shortage of truth. You're going to go through your life and people are going to speak to you with authority on who they believe Jesus to be. You're going to hear, especially college students, we got college students in the room, show me a hand, Oh, look around. Oh, look at that row right there. I see you. You're going to hear, if you haven't heard already, now it's really high school. They're moving backwards into high school and middle school now. But you're going to hear the good guy approach. You're going to hear the moral teacher approach. You're going to hear the Jewish rabbi whose followers made him to be something he wasn't approach. 
You're going to hear the new agey, all he came to do was show us how to love approach. You're going to hear the he never historically existed approach. You're going to hear the we can't be sure if he historically existed because we can't trust the Bible approach. Or to borrow from C.S. Lewis, you will hear the he's a liar approach or the he's a lunatic approach. But hear me now and hide this truth in your heart. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is eternal and uncreated and took on flesh and was born of a virgin and who never once sinned and who was truly man and was truly God. That's who he is. And in addition to these things, he was a great teacher. He was a miracle worker and a compassionate lover of the poor and the outcast and the hurting, and a man's man who said uncomfortable things in uncomfortable situations, and a prophet greater than John, and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and a king greater than David and wiser than Solomon. That's who Jesus is, and I hope you believe it, and I hope you know it. Now, to be fair to Peter and the guys, they were living in the middle of the story. We, we know now, with the benefit of Paul's writings, four completed gospels, all sorts of wonderful teaching, we have benefits they didn't have. They were living in real time. And this is a defining moment in the gospel of Mark. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And I wasn't there, but I like to think Peter, knowing Peter, puffed his chest out a little bit, maybe popped the suspenders, took a deep breath and said, you are the Christ. What does that word mean, the Christ? Is it Jesus' last name? That makes the his middle name, right? No, no, it's not his last name. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. Christ is a title. In the Old Testament, they started with the words anointed one. That's what they said. They called him the anointed one. Now, when you take uh, that phrase, anointed one, in Hebrew, it sounds like Mashiach. That's right. Got to get in the back of the throat there. Way back. Mashiach, right? So we translate that into English from Hebrew as Messiah. That's where that word comes from. Well, where do you get Christ? Well, they brought that phrase, anointed one, from Hebrew into Greek, and it became Christos. And when we go from that Greek into English, it becomes Christ. So every time you say Jesus Christ, you are saying Jesus the anointed one or Jesus the Messiah. Every time. That's what you're saying. Peter was making the affirmation Jesus was the Old Testament Messiah. And now, in Matthew's gospel, which most people prefer because that version's got more details to it, Jesus famously responds with what? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed. Long, awesome story. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Great text. Mark does not include this. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. He just doesn't include it. He keeps it brief. Now, another interesting thing in verse 30. Afterwards, it says, when they say this, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, we haven't addressed this in the book of Mark really yet. Maybe on Sunday night we have, but I want to briefly address it now because you might be reading this and think, wait a minute, I thought the whole point was to tell everybody, to just blow it up. Here he is, Messiah, you know, go tell the towns, and that was what the whole point was. Well, 
You see these statements all throughout Mark. This is not the only one where Jesus kind of tells people, you know, shh, keep it a little quiet, down low for now. Okay. Why would he do that? Well, there's, there's two reasons. One is theological. One is practical. So the practical reason is simple crowd control. Jesus and the disciples were already with the hushing struggling to move around these massive crowds. I mean, we talked about this. He had to have getaway boats on the water to get away from the crowd. And, and he was trying not to get the religious leaders too amped up too soon because there was a fixed time when he was to die. We now know it was to be Passover week in his third year of ministry. So he had to die at that time. So he couldn't really pop the court too early. Theologically, Jesus wanted to be careful about that the message that he was the Messiah was not corrupted. Why? Because the gospel was incomplete at this moment in the story. Jesus had not yet been crucified and risen. He wanted to be careful that people did not think that the Messiah simply came to do miracles because the gospel had still yet to be finished. So he wanted people to know wait a minute, this is part of the story, but there's more to the story that is yet to unfold. And that leads us to the next point today. We've talked about the identity of Jesus or who he is. Now we must look at the second question and ask, what is Jesus' mission? What's his mission? What's his purpose? Now, before you read this, you might think, well, pastor, we just talked about that for the last 10 minutes. No, it's important to recognize there is a big difference in who Jesus is versus what he does. And Peter is going to show you in painful detail that that is the case. So read Mark 8, 31 with me. It says, and he, Jesus, began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." You've heard that old phrase, going from a zero to a hero. Well, this is the opposite. This is when you go from a hero to a zero in a second. This is, uh, this is exhibit A of when people talk about Peter being a man of high highs and low lows. So on the walk to Caesarea Philippi, Peter has confessed Jesus is the actual Jewish Messiah. He is the anointed one. And Jesus affirms it to be true. Then verse 31 says Jesus keeps teaching. He keeps talking. And between verse 31 and 32, we get the summary content of the teaching as well as the method of the teaching. So what's the content first? That the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and after three days rise. Okay? So that's a four-point sermon right there. So here we are in chapter 8. Jesus starts telling the disciples how things are going to go. This is what's going to happen. Now, they don't know it yet, but he is sharing the gospel with them before it happens. If anyone ever asks you, was Jesus self-aware of his mission? You take them here and say, yes, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He taught it in advance. He says, fellas, here's how this is going to go. 
I'm going to suffer many things. Now, did they say like what? I don't know. We know betrayal by a friend, an unjust trial, spit on, beard plucked, whipped on a whipping post, mocked with a purple robe and a crown of thorns, and carry his own cross. He says, I'm going to be rejected by Jewish leadership. My own people are actually going to be the ones to shout, crucify him. He says, I'm going to be killed, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. It's kind of a wild story. That's the content. What's the method? Verse 32 says, he said this, how? Plainly. Now, Jesus, the reason they make this distinction is Jesus had been teaching in parables a lot. He was a wordsmith. He was kind of poetic in the way he said things. He told stories a lot. Not here. At this point, he lays it out. No games. It's all out in the open. Plain spoken. And here's where it gets interesting. What does Peter do? Peter, who already said, you are the Christ, does what? He pulls Jesus aside. Come come over here. Come over. He pulls him aside, takes him to the corner, and rebukes him. I just want you to think about the boldness that you would have to have to rebuke Jesus. All right? Maybe now that tells us more about Peter. But he does it. He rebukes the one he just called the Christ. Imagine someone said, You're going to rebuke the Messiah today when you woke up. That's a wild day. So, how could this happen? Well, obviously, there's a breakdown somewhere. Peter believed Jesus was the Messiah, yes. But Peter did not believe that the Messiah was supposed to suffer and die. So if you said, Peter, true or false, pop quiz, Jesus is the Messiah. He says, true. Now if you said, what does that mean? See, that's the better question, right? Whenever you're making up quizzes for people, Open-ended is great, all right? It takes more time to grade, but, you know. Anyway, he says something like, Peter says, what that means is to restore Israel to national dominance, to throw off Rome, to pick up where David and Solomon left off. That's what Jesus is going to do. Now, again, I like to give the disciples leeway because I would like some leeway if I was in that situation. There weren't many Jewish rabbis who were teaching a suffering Messiah. That was not a dominant theology in Israel. And you're probably like, well, what about Isaiah 53? Well, just know they saw that as describing the suffering of the nation of Israel, not an individual Messiah. There just wasn't a category in their mind that somehow the Messiah would accomplish his task by suffering and dying and being rejected by Israel. I don't think Peter even heard the resurrection part. I think the first part, when the S of suffering got out, he just he swallowed his bubble gum and said, hang on a minute, I need a moment. I don't think he even heard the resurrection. Now, maybe you, maybe you had a weird thought when you woke up this morning and you said, I wonder how I could get Jesus to call me Satan. All right? Maybe that was just a thought you woke up with this morning. Look no further, because now we know. If you want Jesus to call you Satan, just tell him, God's plan is no good, not going to work. Tell him, I've got a better idea, and actually you should be listening to me. Tell him, there is a way, I've been thinking, Jesus, 
Now hear me out. There's a way to achieve the crown of victory without enduring the cross of Calvary. What do you think? Whether Peter knows it or not, he has made an assault on the sovereign will of God. He has called God into question for the very order of the universe. Now, why do we say that? Because, listen, the central defining moment of history is the cross and the empty tomb. That is Jesus' mission. It's God's plan and purpose for all of history, the whole timeline. That's it. The gospel is the, is the center of the timeline. Now, remember this. It's not enough to just know Jesus exists. We must know what he does and why. We must know Jesus cannot be separated from his work on the cross to save sinners by his own death and resurrection. Anything that does that is creating a fictional narrative. We cannot separate those things. So, we got the first two questions now. Who is Jesus and what is his mission The last question, what do you think about it? What do you think about it? This is the response time. This is for you. This is for that person you're going to talk to this about. Don't just leave somebody with, you got the facts? Okay, good. Well, have a good one. No, you got to ask, what are we going to do with this? You see, up to this point in our walkthrough, we've been dealing with facts. Who Jesus is, what he's done. And these things are vital and important. And if you don't have these things settled, do not pass go, do not collect $200, okay? But there does come a point when you have to make a personal response to this information, much like Peter had to. Let's say you can repeat all this back. Let's say you passed the theology test. There's still a follow-up question. What are you going to do about this? What's this going to change in your life? What does this mean for you? Here's a question I don't think we ask enough. Do you like it? Now, I know why we don't, because it's true whether or not we like it or not. Our liking it does not determine the truth of it. But I do think that's good to think about personally, because I think it's important to love God's will. It's important to glory in the sovereign plan of God even when it's hard to understand, and even when you don't immediately respond with glee to it, and even if it involves a degree of suffering. You see, Peter not only had to be corrected by Jesus in his faulty theology of Messiah, but there's a personal correction made here. Look at verse 33. It says, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you. This isn't general. He says, for you, Peter are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus tells Peter, you're thinking about man's interests, not God's interests. In other words, you're reframing God's plan into something more palatable for yourself. You don't like God's way, so you're trying it your way instead. And this is why Jesus calls him Satan. Peter's not literally Satan. Understand that. He's not even momentarily possessed by Satan. No, Peter in this fleshly moment is the embodiment of Satan's strategy. This is what Satan would have. Peter says, Jesus, 
I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like the version of this story where you go to the cross and suffer. I want the version where it's all healing and victory and good times. And we say that for our lives, don't we? I believe Peter may have even had positive motives because look, we know he loved Jesus. Peter was all in. This isn't Judas we're talking about. This is Peter. But even then, he says, get behind me, Satan. When our minds become consumed with the things of man and the world and the flesh, no matter our motivation, it's not honoring to God. Even Peter's thoughts to spare Jesus suffering were wrong. Peter's thoughts to spare Jesus of suffering of the cross could not be seen in a good light at all. Even in his sincerity, he was sincerely wrong. Did not Satan meet Jesus in the wilderness and make a promise to him? If you will just bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything you see right here, right now. Take the deal. Take it. Three, two, one. What do you say? He gave him that deal in the wilderness. What is that? Now, Satan didn't have anything to give, but let's just go to the story. What was that? That was the promise of achieving glory without the cross. Satan tried to offer it to Jesus. Why? Because God is most glorified in the saving of sinners through specifically the avenue of the cross. In John 6, the crowd tried to seize Jesus and take him forcibly and put a crown on his head and make him king right there. They had just seen the feeding of the 5,000. They said, we've seen enough. This is our guy. Somebody get the robe, get the crown. This wasn't the mocking purple robe and crown. This was for real. We got a king. We don't need Herod. Let's get this guy. And they were ready for it. And what did Jesus do? Got out of Dodge. No, sir. Not right now. Not interested. And he just somehow got out of that crowd and left. He rejected the offer of exaltation without the price of suffering. You would be shocked at how many people today, both outside and inside churches, do not want this version of Jesus. They want a version of Jesus different than the one who suffers and is rejected and is killed. I think because deep down we know when we are united to Christ, our paths are forever parallel to his. They want the Jesus who helps us win at life. Sure, we like the resurrection because, you know, that's kind of like overcoming our troubles and things. But here's an unpopular message in the Christian church today. Suffering and death and rejection might be a part of God's plan for your life. Your Christianity will not be all sunshine and rainbows and praise emoji hands and exclamation points and praise reports. It just won't be. It's not all abundance and anointing and singing joyfully and healing and miracles. It's not always being surrounded by close friends and being healthy and wealthy. Sometimes, some of y'all been here, you're just carrying your cross, shouting, my God, why have you forsaken me and suffering and dying like Jesus did? In fact, that's what Jesus said in the very next verse. In verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, you might be sitting back and saying, Pastor, you're, you're talking about taking this message to other people? 
You want me to go out there and try to win people with this strategy? You want me to evangelize with this? Not only are we competing against Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and cults and New Age and atheists and liberals and statism and everything that's going on right now, but we're also competing against other full of baloney Christians that want to make this all about a pretty perfect lifestyle and no problems and healthy, wealthy, and wise. We got to go take this message of death and suffering and rejection and put it up on the pedestal against that and say, choose. Who is going to willingly sign up for this? First of all, all whom the Lord truly calls unto himself will come. You need to know that. You need to believe that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is part of the program. Everyone who is truly saved, including all of y'all, anyone who is truly saved has already come through the blood of Jesus. Your feet are red on the bottom if you look. Our very faith is stained in crimson red. Secondly, I believe those will come who are weary of this empty, fake, phony, self-seeking culture in which we live. Jesus gave us divine purpose in our lives and helps us make sense of suffering. Influencer life cannot help you understand suffering. He knew he was going to the cross. He was dead set on it. It was the purpose of his life. And when Peter tried to knock him off the course, he said, get behind me, Satan. There are people in this world right now, maybe it's you, who don't have a legitimate reason for getting up and starting their day, no purpose, hate their lives, and don't know why. I see a generation of teens and young adults sitting in puddles of their own sorrow, wasting their lives, numbing their minds, watching TikTok videos all day long. But I want you to know that we can say to them and we can say to anyone in here, the offer still stands, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I have purpose for your life. It might be wild. It might be interesting. It might involve suffering. It might involve rejection by friends. It might involve death. As they said of Aslan the lion, it's not safe, but it's good. And it's God's plan. And more meaningful than what this world can offer. So the three questions that you need to be able to ask of yourself and then of someone else. Who is Jesus? What's his identity? Who do you say that he is? That's number one. Number two, what is Jesus' mission? What's his purpose? What did he primarily come to do? Number three, what do you think about that? What kind of response should you make? We worship a suffering Savior. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. May we never try to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross by creating a sanitized version of him. Even today in heaven, Jesus has nail scars in his hands as he intercedes for us as a reminder that there is no crown of glory apart from the cross. Pray with me.